Podcast, the podcast that takes a look at the things that happen just beyond the pages of your history book, at the people, places, and ideas that may have been mentioned in passing, but play a much larger role in the story. I'm Josh Burns, and welcome to Episode 16, Norse Code Part 3. For the last two episodes, we have taken a look at certain aspects of the Vikings and their mythological influences. In this episode, we're going to dive into who the Vikings were in the real world and how they got their fierce reputation. The Vikings as we know of them today originated from the lands of Scandinavia, and Scandinavia is a term used to refer to the kingdoms of Norway, Sweden, and Denmark. The term has been around since Pliny the Elder wrote about it in his first century work, The Natural History, and it's also possible that a form of that name was used by other ancient writers like Tacitus and Jordanes. The other name associated with the region of Scandinavia and the Scandinavian people in general is the Norse or the Norsemen. The word Norse itself is actually a later word from the 1800s, but combine it with man and it sounds like an old Frankish word for Nortman, which means North Man, and from there it's easy to see how the name stuck. Now it would be easy to think that the terms Scandinavians and Vikings are interchangeable, but that isn't the case, at least not entirely. In very general terms, all Vikings are Scandinavians, but not all Scandinavians are Vikings. The word Viking comes from the Norse or Scandinavian word vik, which means a small cove or fjord, which is perfect for a pirate raider crew to strike from. In most dictionaries when you, that you can look at online, there will usually be some kind of reference to the fact that they were raiders or pillagers. Now, later on, the word Viking does begin to be applied to any Scandinavian who lived from around 800 to 1100 AD in the time period also known as the Viking Age. But we're getting ahead of ourselves a little bit. We have to answer the question of who these people were and do our best to separate the real answer from the mythological or popular culture answers. So how do we separate the fact from the popular fiction? Well, there are two ways that give us the most information about the Vikings and Scandinavians. First, the linguistic way, meaning the words that have stuck around from Old Norse and what other people have written about the Vikings. Other people here usually meaning their enemies. And since the writings of their enemies happen after the introduction of Christianity to Scandinavia, we have to keep that in mind as well. As unbiased as the sources may have tried to be, they still were not Scandinavian or Viking. The best and most direct sources that we do have are the books, poetry, and legend that were written down from the oral tradition. And even those books contain a certain amount of bias since they were written down after Christianity was introduced. First, the linguistics and external sources. We have mentioned the ancient historian Jordanes on this podcast before, back in episodes 4 and 5, when we discussed Attila and his Huns. Well, Jordanes is back, and in his work, Getica, describing the origins of the Gothic peoples of Europe, makes mention of an island to the north of Europe called Skanza. That's S-C-A-N-D-Z-A. Now, Skanza is, according to Jordanes, an island in the Arctic regions of the world, and is the ancestral lands of the Goths who burst forth from the island, quote, like a swarm of bees, end quote, and came into the lands of Europe. The island is supposed to be shaped like a juniper leaf that bulges out at the sides and then tapers to a point at the end. The Vistula River in Poland is supposed to empty into the Baltic Sea within sight of the island, and the oceans lie to the north and west of the island. Jordanes tells us that this is an inhospitable land where there were no bees to make honey, and if a wolf crosses over to the island when the waters freeze, it will go blind. 
The sun moves strangely through the sky, and the people who live there are described first and foremost as tall, then as poor, but richly clothed, and finally as bold and quick to fight with the cruelty of wild beasts. Jordanes calls Skanza a womb of nations, and gives a rather long list of evidence of the fact. Nations like the Suhans, the Gadagoths, and the Dani are represented. Now, while it's not certain that Jordanes was talking about Scandinavia per se, it certainly seems that way to me. If you squint, the Scandinavian peninsula looks kind of like a juniper leaf if you want it to, and the Vistula River of Poland does feed into the Baltic Sea, facing almost toward the eastern coast of Sweden. And scholars have tentatively identified the Suihans as the Swedes, the Gadagoths as the Geats, and the Dani as the Danes. It's certainly possible that Jordanes was describing the area we now know of as Scandinavia, but it's not a for sure thing yet. As for words that come down to us from the Vikings, there are some fun ones. We've already mentioned the word hell coming from the Norse goddess of the underworld of the same name, as well as the days of the week. The word slaughter comes from the Old Norse word slatra and means butchery. Ransack comes from the word ransaka, meaning to search a house. Husband is a combination of the words hus and bondi, meaning house and occupier, so house occupier. Blunder comes from blundra, meaning to shut your eyes and walk around banging into things. And the word happy comes from the word hop, meaning good fortune or good fate. Other words like anger, knife, bylaw, thrall, saga, yule, bull, muck, axle, cake, freckles, and ironically, heathen, all come down to English from the Old Norse. And these are just a few of them out there. A quick internet search revealed a great many more. The second way that we can tell Viking fact from Viking fiction is through what we have found in graves and burial sites scattered throughout northern Europe. One of the most important of these burial sites is the Sutton Hoo site, which lies east-northeast of London. Sutton Hoo, S-U-T-T-O-N space H-O-O, is a grave field containing about 20 barrows, or burial mounds, that are the final resting places of, of people who appear to have been of great wealth or prestige. The artifacts found at the site are incredible. Intricate designs are carved into metal and gold with exquisite detail. These were people who were not only skilled in the arts of war, but also in the arts of jewelry and beauty. Sutton Hoo is also significant because it contained an undisturbed ship burial. Now a ship burial is a grave which uses a boat as the main resting place for the deceased. So instead of a coffin, there's an entire ship dragged up onto the land and buried. The ship burial site was unearthed in 1939, with further excavations happening in the 1960s and 80s. Gold and gem-encrusted metalwork, a beautiful sword and shield, and a ceremonial helmet were all discovered in the main burial chamber, as well as something that we will come back to later, pieces of silver plate from the Byzantine Empire. These were just a handful of the items found, however. At the time of this recording, if you go onto the website for the British Museum in London, there are over 900 pictures of the artifacts found at the site. Now, some of those pictures are showing the same item from different angles, but the point is that this particular site was a significant discovery for archaeologists and historians alike. Now, most people would probably think of a long-bearded, axe-wielding warrior 
with long braided hair and a horned helmet standing proudly at the helm of a single-sailed, dragon-headed longboat, complete with little round shields attached to the hull of the vessel. Now, this view of the Vikings is probably mostly right, with the exception of the horned helmet, for sure. There is no evidence that the Vikings wore horned helmets in battle. It is a possibility that some form of horned helmet was used in rituals or ceremonies, but not in battle. Based on the helmet that was found at the Sutton Hoo site, the Vikings and Anglo-Saxons may not have used something so mundane. In truth, there was probably very little room for mundaneness in Viking life. There is evidence for three groups of people in Viking culture, the Karls, the Jarls, and the Kings. The Karls, spelled K-A-R-L-S, were the common folk, the farmers, merchants, landowners, and craftsmen. And fun fact, the name Karl comes from a northern Germanic word meaning man, which kind of gives an indication as to who the term belonged to. The Karls themselves had an internal hierarchy of their own, with landowners and rich merchants hanging out at the top of the heap, and fishermen and those who were employed by someone else were towards the bottom. All of the Karls were still considered to be above the vagrants and the slaves. In the book A Dark History, Vikings, author Martin Doherty tells us just how and why those last two groups of people were regarded so poorly in Viking society, saying, quote, Vagrants were free men, but unlike the rest of the Karl class, they did not enjoy the full protection of the law. Indeed, it was legal to rob or even castrate a vagrant in Iceland. This was due in part to the importance of accountability in Icelandic Viking society. To be a proper member of society, an individual had to be accountable, which meant that he had to have a permanent home where a summons to the thing could be de delivered. End quote. The thing, the capital T, thing. That's not a typo or a reference to a movie with Kurt Russell and Keith David. The capital T thing in Viking and Germanic society was an assembly of the freemen of the community. The freemen in the society would come together at a thing and decide on matters of law to settle disputes and to practice public forms of religious rights. In Norway, only fully grown freemen were allowed to participate, while in Iceland, women were allowed to be present but not to participate. The next group of people were the Jarls, J-A-R-L-S. These were the men who had not only money and land, but also high amounts of social status. A Jarl was expected to be able to command the respect and loyalty of his supporters, to lead them bravely in battle, and to be a guardian of his people. As such, the Jarl's power, influence, and even title were subject to the whims of the people and influenced by how he treated his people. The last group of the free men were the kings, who were the most powerful of the nobility. Instead of having huge tracts of land combined into one giant kingdom, as we see in the Middle East and other areas, Viking kingdoms were relatively small and quite numerous. Kings were just seen as men in charge of other men, and their power was derived from the loyalty of their people. This is quite different, again, from what we see in other parts of the world, where we see rulers claiming to rule by divine right, or by claiming to be some kind of god-king like in Egypt. Now, as in seemingly every ancient society, there were slaves in the Viking world. These were known as thralls, and were usually captured in battle, or were made slaves when they could not pay back a debt. Thralls had the ability to marry, defend themselves, and to eventually work or buy himself out of his bondage. There were some protections for thralls, as they were used to do hard manual labor at very little cost to the owner. 
Having too many slaves, though, was not considered wise, as it upped the chances for the slaves to revolt if they felt they were being mistreated or overly abused. Speaking of marriage, Viking society seems to have been geared in favor of the institution. Marriages could be thought of as a sort of high-stakes business deal, where two families would arrange for their children to be married to one another, with the fathers usually doing most of the dealings. It was a dangerous game, though, as feuds could erupt between families if the groom's proposal was rejected or if the bride was asked for marriage incorrectly. Romeo and Juliet would not have fared well in these times, as there were specific laws in place to prevent heartsick men from composing love poetry and love songs to a woman so as not to complicate things with a prospective suitor's father. In one of the Icelandic sagas, a father sends assassins after a suitor who is sending love songs to his daughter. Even though marriage seems to have been a complicated and sensitive issue, divorce, it seems, was not. The husband or the wife could declare that they were divorced in front of a group of witnesses, and that was that. The only catch was that all property had to be split evenly and the very real possibility of sparking a blood feud from the former in-laws. Now it was these people who had become some of the most feared warriors in Europe during what has been called by historians as the Viking Age. Simple farmers, fishermen, and craftsmen, really, who usually wore clean, simple clothes, could read, and were usually fairly clean. These warriors would go out on raids, yes, but would then come home and return to their lives. So the question then becomes, why did the Viking raids begin at all? There are a few guesses out there. It's possible there was a need for more land for farming, or for greater amounts of natural resources, like stone or metal ore. It could also have been because population growth meant that there were simply more people around to take advantage of the riches of growing economies in Western and Eastern Europe. The growing population could have meant that some Vikings left traditional familiar lands and set out to colonize and thereby conquer other lands. And raiding could simply have been born from a desire for more riches, power, and glory, stemming from the religious attitudes of the people and their mythology. Raiding doesn't seem like it was a large group activity either. It doesn't seem as if raids were planned out at a thing or something and the big Viking king commanded all able-bodied men to go and do a singular mass raid somewhere. That wasn't really something that seems to have taken place. Raids were more of a small-scale thing, where one community might join up with another and then go off somewhere to see what they could take from others. One of my favorite history-related memes that I've seen so far has the caption, Never forget that on this day in 793 AD, a group of Vikings selflessly rescued the treasures of Lindisfarne from a great fire after the monks mysteriously and spontaneously died. The picture that accompanies the words shows a drawing of a burning monastery in the background along with some dragon-headed Viking longships on the, so on the shore. A tonsured monk lies in the grass at an unnatural angle, while a treasure-laden Viking warrior stands above him holding a chest on one shoulder and some golden treasure in his other hand. Other Vikings carry bags full of treasure toward the long ships on the, sh on the shoreline. <laughs> when I saw this, I started laughing so much that my wife looked over at me to see what I was reading. I showed her and sat waiting for some acknowledgement of the humor that I saw. Instead, she looked at me and asked what was so funny about this picture. I smiled and said that the joke was that the Vikings set the fires and unalived all the monks. The Lindisfarne Raid is usually thought to have taken place on or around June 8, 793 AD, and it serves as the definitive arrival of the Vikings into world history. 
Prior to Lindisfarne, the Vikings were little-known bit players in regional politics and trade, with an occasional tiny raid thrown in here and there. But Lindisfarne changed all of that. Now, monasteries were easy targets for a raid. They were usually in remote locations far from civilization to allow for the monks and clergy to conduct their religious practices in seclusion, far from the hustle, bustle, and distraction of the villages and the small cities. Though they were remote, if a monastery held a relic of a saint or commanded some other religious significance, there was a good chance that there would be pilgrims coming out to worship or to pay their respects. This meant that, in time, monasteries would become a repository for the more earthly treasures of the world, which were just shiny and valuable enough to attract the attention of the pagans on the outskirts of the Christian world. Monasteries were also usually very poorly defended, if they were defended at all. So, you have an isolated, rich building, home to religious clergy, not likely to be a match for even the most unskilled farmer or craftsman wearing armor and carrying a sword. While most Vikings wanted to enter Valhalla to fight by the side of the gods, they probably weren't that eager to get there in a hurry. As Shakespeare would say centuries later, quote, All the world's a stage, and all the men and women merely players. They have their exits and entrances, and one man in his time plays many parts. And the Vikings seemed to have been listening through the ages to this bit of monologuing, and were determined not to be left out. The Anglo-Saxon Chronicles entry for 793 A.D. gives an account of the raid, saying, quote, A.D. 793. This year came dreadful forewarnings over the land of the Northumbrians, terrifying the people most woefully. There were immense sheets of light rushing through the air, and whirlwinds and fiery dragons flying across the firmament. These tremendous tokens were soon followed by a great famine, and not long after, on the sixth day before the Ides of January in the same year, the harrowing inroads of heathen men made lamentable havoc in the Church of God in Holy Island by rapine and slaughter. End quote. Now that quotation is from the Project Gutenberg translation by James Ingram back in 1823. Other translations of the Old English text specifically name Lindisfarne instead of Holy Island. A contemporary account of the attack can also be found in a letter from Alcuin of York, an English scholar, poet, and clergyman. Alcuin writes to Higbald, one of the new bishops at Lindisfarne following the Viking attack, and states, quote, To Bishop Higbald and the whole community of the Church of Lindisfarne, good sons in Christ of a most blessed father, the holy Bishop Cuthbert, Alcuin, a deacon, sends greeting and blessing in Christ. When I was with you, your loving friendship gave me great joy. Now that I am away, your tragic sufferings daily bring me sorrow, since the pagans have desecrated God's sanctuary, shed the blood of saints around the altar, laid waste the house of our hope, and trampled the bodies of the saints like dung in the street. I can only cry from my heart before Christ's altar, O Lord, spare thy people, and do not give the Gentiles thine inheritance, lest the heathen say, Where is the God of the Christians? End quote. Where is the God of the Christians? This line, spoken by a man of the church, encapsulates one of the difficulties that Christian missionaries would have in their efforts to convert the Scandinavian Norsemen to their new religion. Remember that the Norse Vikings looked at their relationship with the gods in a transactional, what-have-you-done-for-me-lately kind of light. If a god wasn't working out for the individual, it was not uncommon to switch religious allegiances to a god or goddess who could give them what they wanted. In the book, 
the book of the settlement of Iceland, there are a handful of short lines describing the faith of one Helgi the Lean, which is, I think, a bit of a dubious title. But anyway, the first line, found in chapter 12, says this, quote, Helgi was very shifty in his faith. He believed in Christ, but made vows to Thor for seafaring and hardy deeds. Then, when Helgi sighted Iceland, he went to inquire of Thor where he should make land, end quote. And later on, we are told, quote, He, meaning Helgi the Lean, abode that winter at Bild's River, and in the spring he moved his household to Christness, and dwelt there the remainder of his life. End quote. And finally we are told, quote, Helgi believed in Christ, and therefore gave his name to his dwelling. End quote. So here we see the dichotomy of belief that was present at this time. Thor is called upon for what feels more dangerous and of more imminent danger, while Jesus Christ was reserved for less dangerous things and the naming of the man's house for the rest of his life. But back to Alcuin and his letter. Alcuin goes on to say to Bishop Higbald, quote, Do not be dismayed by this disaster. God chastises every son whom he accepts, so perhaps he has chastised you more because he loves you more. Jerusalem, a city loved by God, was destroyed, with the temple of God in Babylonian flames. Rome, surrounded by its company of holy apostles and countless martyrs, was devastated by the heathen, but quickly recovered through the goodness of God. Almost the whole of Europe has been denuded with fire and sword by Goths and Huns, but now by God's mercy is as bright with churches as the sky with stars, and in them the offices of the Christian religion grow and flourish. Encourage each other, saying, Let us return to the Lord our God, for he is very forgiving and never deserts those who hope in him. Alcuin then proceeds to give some encouragement to his ecclesiastical brethren, but not without reminding them to refrain from any kind of sin that might lead to more chastisement. Note, though, the religious attitudes happening here in Alcuin's letter. The raid was seen as a source of chastisement, and Alcuin compares it to the troubles that other religious sinners had dealt with ever since Christianity arose centuries earlier. This was clearly traumatizing for the clergy in the British Isles, but for the Vikings, this was nothing special. It was a job and nothing more. But for Europe as a whole, it brought this fierce and violent people into the limelight of history where they have enjoyed a cultural longevity even into the modern day. Some of this, I think, revolves around the mystique of these people. I remember growing up and reciting the ever-popular almost nursery rhyme, In 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. And from there, being introduced to the idea of the new world that I just happened to live in, but was completely unknown to the Europeans, until Columbus's faithful voyage that changed history. I don't remember how old I was, but I remember getting a small sense of wonder upon discovering for myself that actually Columbus wasn't the first European dude to discover the New World, but there was another guy who did it almost 500 years before the Italian guy did. To me, the idea that a guy named Leif Erikson discovered the New World around 1000 AD and called it Vinland offered up a whole range of crazy possibilities. But the possibilities were seemingly endless as the Vikings spread out across Europe and began popping up everywhere. Viking settlements pop up in Russia, and they involved themselves in wars in Ireland and were able to sack Paris in 857 AD. They raided inland seas such as the Caspian Sea and the Black Sea and made their mark in Palestine and North Africa. In 1066 AD, a Norwegian king named Harald Hardrada 
also known as Harold Sigurdsson, was defeated at the Battle of Stamford Bridge in Yorkshire, England by the Saxon king, Harold Godwinson. Godwinson would later be defeated by a Norman by the name of William the Conqueror, who was, no surprise here, really good at conquering things. Godwinson and William met at the Battle of Hastings, a battle which is depicted on the famous Bayeux Tapestry, and was a decisive win for William and a big fat L for Godwinson, as some disputed legends say that the king was killed by taking an arrow to the eye. The Battle of Hastings is usually cited as the last time that England was successfully invaded by a foreign power, and is usually seen as the beginning of the end of the Viking Age. Like most things that historians mark as the end of, the partic of a particular age, the Viking Age didn't abruptly just stop in 1066, but continued to linger on with other battles and things happening with mainly Viking forces for a number of years after. Unified Viking and Scandinavian kingdoms, combined with the conversion to Christianity, are two of the factors that play into the end of the Viking Age. After all, if the Vikings were converted to Christianity, and the people that they targeted and preyed upon were Christians, then would go against their new religion to attack their brothers and sisters in Christ. Other political forces factored into the end of the Viking Age, but to be honest, if I start pulling at that thread, we'll be here all day. So we'll save that for another episode. Though the Viking Age came to a slow and gradual end, the influence of these Norwegian, Danish, Swedish, Anglo-Saxon warriors has lasted into today's world. Like we said in the first episode of our series, Norse and Viking influence is so great that you can't really look anywhere in our world today without stumbling upon something that reminds us of those ancient peoples. Whether it's in spacecraft like the Viking 1 and 2 space probes, movies like The Lord of the Rings or Thor, TV shows like the aptly named Viking show, video games like The Elder Scrolls V, Skyrim, or Age of Empires II, or even as we said in the days of the week, the Viking influence persists today. And that will do it for this painfully short series on the Vikings. Honestly, there are so many sources out there that deal with the Vikings and their culture that I couldn't cover nearly enough here. But if you have any questions, concerns, or comments, you can send them to me by emailing historyontheside at gmail.com, through Facebook or Instagram by searching History on the Side, or by checking out www.historyontheside.com. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.